Hey everybody, this is the first part of a two-parter I recorded with returning economists Mitch Green and Eric Dean. They talked to Garrett and I about everything from MMT to the horror that is private equity to the crappy stimulus thing we have on, to even to get a bit of history about the New Deal and Keynesian economics. This is only the first half. If you'd like to hear the whole thing, subscribe at our Patreon at patreon.com slash mic. Thanks, and uh, tell your friends. America, here is a record of it to judge for yourself. City streets, bounded by ever-increasing traffic, are modernized, resurfaced, thousands of blocks which mean huge savings in local tax money. Vital to the communities which they serve are the thousands of miles of highways constructed and improved by the works program. The need for first-class highways grows constantly as the automobile and the motor truck become increasingly important in both city and rural commerce. In many regions, great loss has befallen farmers and other rural residents during periods of bad weather which made secondary roads impassable. The need for adequate farm-to-market roads, which would make the transportation of farm produce independent of weather conditions, has been recognized in all parts of the country. But not until the beginning of the works program was it possible to initiate a general plan for the development of farm-to-market roads. This plan brings immediate improvement in local business and property values wherever a secondary road is completed. At last, the farmer finds it possible to reach his market over well-constructed, weatherproof roads. In all these construction projects, local labor is employed, and wherever possible, the raw materials are obtained from quarries in the immediate vicinity. How big is the WPA road program? In its first 18 months of operation, the mileage end-to-end -end would have stretched five times around the earth. In many parts of the country are regions which depend largely upon the tourists' trade as a local industry. Areas of great scenic beauty have been made available to thousands of visitors through the development of systems of roads in national and state parks and at other centers of attraction for tourists. Many of these vacation spots were completely inaccessible before the assistance of the works program made road construction possible. The welfare of the community served by a new construction project is always the first consideration, and plans are laid not only for the present, but for the more demanding future. In the field of public health, many important and permanent improvements have been undertaken. The water resources of thousands of cities and towns have been expanded by the construction of reservoirs and water supply systems, ensuring an adequate supply of water for the community's needs for many years to come. figured I would, you know, since we had y'all on the phone, y'all on the show before, we'll ask you. But I wanted to like, go over like, what the stuff actually is, if you can mix it into, um, like, from a historical side, like, what kind of, like, you know, New Deal Keynesianism stuff was, and then, you know, for the biggest compare and contrast, like, kind of, um, I don't know, like, just a rough, uh, like, rough little intro as to, like, whatever kind of shit they're proposing now with, the, like, you know, the... The early, you know, the, uh, the, the first few earliest stages of the, uh, the Steam and the Spell. Because they're probably, there's probably going to be, like, God knows how many of these things they're going to shove through. Yeah, somehow we're already talking about four. Yeah. But I, I, the, the big one was three. I don't remember what the first two were. Mitch, do you know what that is? No. The fir I, think, <laughs> I thought maybe it was the Fed stuff. I think it was, yeah. I think the first two. Yeah. 
I think that there was some early, uh, like phase two, perhaps. I think phase one was some Fed stuff. Yeah. Phase the- two was, um, and and to be and to be clear, the Fed stuff is actually, it's just ongoing. It's a continuum of Fed stuff. Yeah, it was like them uh, dumping trillions into the, uh, to like. Yeah keep to like blip the market for like 15 for like 15 minutes at a time or something wasn't it for with like somewhere between one half and 1.5 trillion this is like way back in was it like early march or something was that back in the with the repo issue yeah that's year? that's repo stuff and even but i think what jeremy's referring to is like um right after the covid stuff was breaking um and in fact it was like in, what was finals week uh, fuck, it was, um, shit. Recently? Uh, early about, March. Early March. Yeah, about three, four weeks ago. Yeah, I remember, like, thinking the lax lecture I gave to my students, maybe the end of February even, um, was like, okay, the stock market went to shit today. What happened? That was the beginning of the sort of equities roll-off, like the sort of decline in the S&P yeah. and the Dow. Mm-hmm. Um, just shortly after that, I think maybe a week after that, they had, um, there was some Federal Reserve action that, quote unquote, injected one and a half trillion dollars worth of liquidity into the sort of um, repo market. But that was a it was it was a liquidity problem, which is which is very different than this other stuff. But um, but to the to the earlier question, I think the first fiscal package was a paid leave and sort of an emergency paid leave uh, and like sort of family uh. stuff. Which the details of which escape me again. There's been I gotta tell you this. It's been about a month. I swear to God, this feels like forty years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just like I can't even remember what February was. I don't know what it's, year it is anymore. February. Abandon the notion of time altogether, Mitch, and, and you'll be much better. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've done something like DMT before. It's you've been here before. It's I've just done something like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what they what the kids were calling it in those days, or what the medical name was. I think my buddy just called them research chemicals from China. Yeah. Uh, oh God, uh, Jeff, yeah. Jeff Gertzman has talked about how he knew he had friends back in Petaluma who were into you know, or actually they weren't people he knew um, in real life. At least you know he knew people who know those people who were like really really into stuff that hasn't even been named yet. That has just has just weird weird suffixes yeah. and and letters and numbers. Yeah, when we need when um when economists go on Joe Rogan, that's they call it the mix of uh, MMT and DMT. <laughs> Anyway, and you are listening to uh, Giving the Light to the Wrong Person. Hi, everybody. I am your host, Jeremy. Welcome back once again uh, under the uh, – it has been so many, you know, X number uh, – you know, 765 days since the event, and we are all remaining indoors. Uh, gathered uh, old, gathered a uh, collection of returning friends again to talk to, to – talk some more economics talk because – you know we're stuck inside, so why the hell not? The uh, the topic for our evening's chat is going to be a mix of getting into you know you some of you might have heard of um, MMT, the uh, modern monetary theory, and uh, well you know so I figured it was a good enough excuse to have a talk about both that and also mixing compare and contrast that with say. Uh, Kind of like Keynesianism or you know New Deal economics stimulus and what they did way back in you know the last time everything well 
one of the la- actually not even the last time when when things went to shit 80 years ago and also talk about the how the uh, what current kind of quote-unquote stimulus is there trying to shove through uh, the system is going on right now and you know kind of compare and contrast the whole thing so we got everything from like current events some econ theory and some history so it's going to be real wild times now won't it Wanted to uh, introduce all y'all on the phone uh, with me today, uh, going around the room. Uh, I guess we'll start with uh, our returning co-host, Garrett, if you would say hi to the viewing audience. Hey, everybody. Remain indoor. Thank you very much. And uh, our two, our two subject matter, our two uh, SME for the uh, for the evening uh, are joining us once again back from our economics episode recorded. several lifetimes ago if you guys could say hello and uh, you know reintroduce yourself to uh to everyone whoever wants to go first hi my name is mitch green i'm um local economist in portland oregon um yeah happy to be here friend of the show yeah and i'm eric dean uh, also a local economist i like that local economist uh that's what i'm going with awesome from mitch <laughs> area man <laughs> Okay, so um, how should we start this? Should we start this with uh, current event stuff, or do you want to start with theory, or should we start with history? Uh, what, are we, what are we thinking? I think current events is the. I, I think once we get into questions about the current stimulus, uh, that's going to raise questions about the history and also about uh, MMT. Gotcha. Okay, well then let us start. Let's start with the the. Um, we are recording. What the fuck day is it? Um, we were recording this the second weekend in April. I don't know anymore. It's, there is un- no time. Yeah, it's like I've been unemployed uh, since late December, and we've and everybody else kind of like you know has been uh, join me indoors for the. Uh, it's like yeah, the Bernie campaign's done, so it's like we we can't really go outside and canvas and you know do shit there. So what's you know, there's no sports. Um, anyway, um, no sports such a trip by the way, but I know that's not your main. No, I think it will. It's it's honestly no different. I haven't noticed it because I, I don't watch sports. And so I'm the one person on earth, I think, that was unaware that they canceled sports. Was, well, I, I I, I'm not aware because there's no bars. So if there's no <laughs> bars, there's no sports anyways. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's just yeah, this word. I don't watch them either, but I can't imagine, like, I you know, there are people that I work with that I wouldn't hear them talk if they weren't talking about sports. You know what I mean? Like what's happening right. to their lives? It must be a wreck for, for creatures. Well, yeah, it was the thing is like sports were always the it was like 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 the weather. You know, it's kind of like the one neutral, neutral. You know, it was like one of the safe neutral uh, conversation topics that you could talk. You know, that were um, that folks could just right. talk about. You know, the, the vaguely shared experience, but. Um, so anyway, so we anyway we are recording this in early mid April, and uh, our lovely federal government in this foul year of our Lord 2020 has been, um, you know, making that money machine go burr and um, and just churning out money and usually going to the wrong people, not on you know the, the shades of 2008 here. Um, so I wanted to I think let's just, can we just start uh, talking about uh, let us start with. Uh, I guess the opening question is, <laughs> what uh, let's what has happened uh, heretofore? What has ha- what has brought us to this point? If uh, either any of y'all would like to start, um, well, I mean, I can I can tell you. So, as everyone is acutely aware at this point, um, there is a global pandemic on, 
and um, and here's and you know I I cannot miss this opportunity to plug the value of understanding the importance of institutions. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm an institutional economist. It's very rare that uh, that the sort of moment is screaming out for an institutional economist to explain how why institutions matter. So here we go. Um, the United States does not have the institutions to respond to this type of a crisis. Uh, we don't have the sort of sort of public health infrastructure that you would need, to say, a, a nation state like sort of an economic system like South Korea that has or, or any other, in fact, any other developed country, to be quite honest with you, um, just simply is not ready to respond to something like this on a public scale. And so we essentially let let the rate of infection like go outside of a window of, of, of opportunity where you could actually mitigate it selectively. And so as a result, to avoid uh, estimates in, in, the, in the millions of casualties as a result of this, um, of this health crisis, we sort of had to bring the economy into a managed standstill, for a lack of a better word, which is a very peculiar type of economic shock. Um, I would argue that it is both a demand shock and also supply shock at the same time. So, I, so Eric, I, what, what do you think about that? I mean, does that sound reasonable? Yeah, actually, I think that's that's the perfect way of, of putting it, and it is it is extraordinarily unique. I've been trying to t- come up with kind of historical parallels, and it's obviously very hard. Uh, the closest I could kind of think of just today, and maybe it's wrong just because I just had the thought, is, you know, when we when we geared up for World War II, we had a similar issue with, uh, it's clearly the technical reasons we, we had the issue are, are different, but we had a similar issue in the sense of uh, we had to more or less reduce private domestic consumption so that we could do more production for the war efforts itself. Um but yeah, in, in any case, we're at a we're at a situation in which um, production can't be done in the way that it used to be done. Uh, the big issue now is production can't be done, kind of period, to some extent. At least a lot of production, uh, you know, going to the bar, for instance, uh, or working at the bar rather. Um, so yeah, and the big issue this has created, uh, aside from supply. Uh, shortages, which we can kind of get into uh, separately, is there's a balance of payments problem. Everybody owes everybody money, uh, you know, on a daily and especially on a monthly basis. And if that money doesn't get paid, there's the traditional institutions have it um, that things happen. You have to file bankruptcy or you lose your house or what have you. Uh, So we're trying to figure out how to make that not happen without too much disruption, I guess. That's that's one major thing I think we're trying to do, not where the government, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny that you mentioned the balance of payments piece because, um, you know, economists like myself and Eric um, tend to harp on when we teach or when we sort of get the opportunity to speak to the public tend to harp on the importance of monetary relations, um, maybe example, even oh. even to the point that some leftists find it detestable that you would focus on monetary relations. Yeah, okay. But nevertheless, monetary relations are important because it's not just a commodity relation that we have with respect to these sort of um, economic uh, activities. And so you can't simply just stop producing boots 
stop producing loaves of bread and go home and, and, and sit on your hoard of boots and, and bread, right? Like you actually have these durable transactional relations that are codified as debts, codified as credits, and they link together the sort of balance sheets that um, constitute a network, a broader network of, of, of monetary relations. And those, when things fall apart, those tend to unravel and you get deep, deep economic crises unless you step in to plug the holes, basically. Let's see, can you give us some example, some examples of the of the monetary relations and the, and the chains? Is, is effectively what like someone can't pay a renter can't pay rent, and so the and the landlord then can't pay can't pay mortgage, and therefore. Or? That's exactly right. I mean, that's probably the one that most of our listeners would be thinking about right now: is how am I going to pay rents? Okay, we've blown past April 1st. That's when rent is due. It's now, what, April 11th? I can't remember. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> just to give some numbers on that, uh, yeah. they did a poll recently. I forget who it was, but I was reading about it this morning. Uh, and I think by the 5th, only 69% of renters that they had numbers on, whoever it was, had actually paid rents. And that number is usually about 80 or uh, lower 80 percent. So that's it's a pretty big spike in, in non-payment, at least not um, till the up until the fifth. And there's going to be an interesting. This is a related, though small. I, I was reading about they're finding out that there's a lot of people that have been basically illegally subletting, like like uh, a bunch of apartments through Airbnb. Uh, and like they just just tens of thousands of dollars that that some of them are are not able to uh, use to you know it, it's just a, it's a trip man like that's a, another strange example of how the existing sort of er- relationships even illegal in this case are are going are going to go haywire. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Garrett. Because um, all right, there's going to be we'll talk. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the mechanisms that have been proposed to um, shore this stuff up. Uh, but those mechanisms will, um, at, at best, uh, prevent a deep decline in the sort of legitimate sectors of the economy. But there are meaningful illegitimate sectors of the economy that would not be eligible for forms of relief. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But it, it's sort of a crisis like this will sort of lay bare the fragility that exists in the system that has grown up in the system. Yeah, that was right. yeah, that's kind of the what, like Patrick Wyman's post about because he's been writing a lot of he was the one who did the Fall of Rome podcast and has been writing about how like these kind of crises don't necessarily cause the collapse so much as kind of like uh, rip down rip away the veil of just to show the rot. Of like all like internal systems and infrastructure had just been just completely you know gone and you know had been packaged up and sold to the highest bidder you know on eBay. Yeah. On a on a related note, I had uh, um, Eric had suggested reading David Dayan, and I, I read a couple of uh, those posts today. I was pretty surprised to see that like something that I had had come to my attention as like something that was due for a comeuppance, which is pr- a lot of pr- private equity and how it worked. Uh, is kind of going to get seemingly bailed out along with the rest of it. You know what I mean? So you're going to have a lot of suffering, you know, little people. And then these sort of this questionable social institution called private equity is going to maybe just skate by on it. I don't really I don't know the market well enough. But yeah, and that from what I've been reading, that 
that is one of the big kind of um, it's it's not clear if it's going to happen yet, but if it does happen, it's going to be one of the big kind of controversial things with the stimulus package. If if the stimulus money goes that's intended for especially small and medium sized uh, enterprises ends up going to all of the private equities firms that have just been buying up those companies, especially for the last ten years, uh, then it's going to be um, controversial. At least yeah. it's it's going to be an obviously. Uh, massive fraud uh, is what's going to happen there. Good times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, let's get okay. So let's get back to the um, both the shocks. You know the shocks that went through, and so the, you had, let's step through. Okay, can we give a little bit of the info of some of the stuff that the federal government? Kind of, although side note, it, it, I don't know. Talking, it's, it's almost like the you know the the destruction of Airbnb kind of requires its own episode, doesn't it? It's like if Airbnb dies, that was probably going to be a good thing. But if all the but so many people have kind of like built their own little um, you know income streams off of off of the off of fucking Airbnb that you know um, <laughs> what happened you know that's some part it's, it's almost like a you know half economic half uh, philosophical point of like what happens if um, a completely illegitimate and predatory system, you know, is removed, but there's nothing else to replace it. But anyway, um, like I said, you know, endless topics to be generated. Uh, can we go back to um, just some more of like, so all the stuff starts happening in February, March, I guess. And like, then what happens next once the, um, like what, you know, what does like the Fed and the other systems like start dumping into, start dumping and why? Well, at a high level, and you know, to to be clear, if if you feel confused about what's been going on, you're you're probably not alone because it, it has come, the, the the sort of response has come in fits and starts, uh, and the biggest and most important aspect of it so far, at least from the fiscal side of the house, was the CARES Act, but that was like the third phase of the fiscal policy response. Okay, and so. It, you know, if you're a student of macroeconomics, you know that there's generally two policy tools to respond to a um, an economic crisis. On the one hand, you have monetary policy, and that's the Federal Reserve leaning on its levers and moving that around. And then you got the fiscal policy side, which is Congress getting together, writing laws to appropriate funds. Um, the we're we're on we've done three phases of fiscal policies. The first phase was just a very small amount of money to shore up health agencies, $8 billion. Um, and then it, it's almost like immediately they knew that that was just insufficient. Uh, and then they went into a second round, which was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Um, that provided some more funding for Medicaid, uh, SNAP benefits, um, beefing up unemployment insurance a little bit here and there. Again, not enough. And uh, the third one that I think folks are maybe – anticipating um, uh, hitting their bank account, which if that may ever come, uh, we'll see. Uh, that uh, that's, that's the CARES Act, which is the, the acronym. I don't know what it necessarily stands for. It doesn't really matter so much. Yeah. Um, but that's the big $2 trillion piece of legislation, and that's a large number. Um, it's a large number historically just in nominal terms, um, but it's also interesting because it's we sort of you know that the money printer go burr meme is just sort of describing how 
is we have seemingly just thrown trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy to respond to this in a way that, like, even a month ago, everyone said we couldn't afford to do that uh, for things like Medicare for All or student loan relief or whatever. Um, now, I would say that uh, all of these measures, these three measures combined, are still insufficient. Um, meanwhile, the Federal Reserve has been up to some some pretty wild stuff, uh, which is arguably even more important than what the, the, uh, the Congress has been doing. Um, Eric, uh, anything I've... Eric, you're, oh. you're, Eric you, mute, you muted yourself. Oh, I thought I had... Uh, I thought go. I was muted, and I unmuted myself. I was incorrect. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, should we kind of go through a little bit of the Fed side? Um, Might as well. Just kind of separate this out? Because yeah. the yeah the the Fed is it's so so Mitch mentioned we're talking monetary policy one of the two main components of macroeconomic policy uh, this is the Fed intervening in the financial markets in general for the purposes of maintaining liquidity in those markets basically what happens is um, if if they're if everybody's looking to sell you know whatever financial instruments. Um, and nobody's looking to buy it, then you're going to see the prices collapse out from under them. Uh, and the Fed can kind of intervene uh, in those markets to, in essence, adjust or prop up those prices. Um, so what the Fed is really doing, uh, and Mitch, correct me if I'm, if I'm stating this too broadly relative to all this new stuff that they're doing, uh, is they're, they're basically pumping dollars into the system. They're acting as um, a willing buyer in a situation where nobody is nobody else is willing to buy this stuff that way the prices of the stuff doesn't drop uh, you know precipitously the weird yeah, they, thing sorry, yeah, they are they're they're acting both as lender of last resort but also purchaser of last resort for a broad class of assets yeah and that's that's the weird thing in, in terms of operating to inject liquidity into the markets, I mean, the Fed the Fed does this with treasuries on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, when when you see the Fed, you know, has lowered rates, it in effect lowers those rates by these, essentially these sorts of uh, interventions uh, determining basically the price of, um, of overnight lending between banks. I'm trying to not complicate this too much. Uh, the the major, as far as I can see, the, the the major significant change is the class of assets that it's now willing to intervene in. And so it used to only intervene really in, uh, I mean, not not technically specifically only treasuries, right, Mitch? Uh, I don't remember all the details of of standard interventions, but a, a limited class of of financial instruments. Uh, and only recently it started opening up and saying we're going to start buying. Uh, I think just Thursday they said we're going to start buying junk bonds now, right? Oh boy. Yep. Uh, yep. So uh, they've, yeah. they've dusted off the uh, shelf. Um, th there was a bunch of like special um, facilities at the Fed, so to speak, that were established during the last crisis uh, that allowed for the the broader purchase of all sorts of asset-backed securities and other sort of. Um, securities, uh, and they they sort of they've dusted that off and and signaled and messaged that they are going to uh, purchase you know commercial debts, uh, municipal bonds. Um, that's that's actually fairly fairly new. Um, that was a really interesting one. 
to me that they were going to buy state and local government debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, and, that, and that policy guidance is still evolving. And right now it's not a universal, um, you know, commitment to purchase and stabilize all municipal debt. Uh, I think right now they've s- sort of said we're gonna we're gonna go after some some large municipalities. Um, not sure and what it, the thinking is there, but I think they want to. I think they want to like um, maintain this illusion that they're not picking winners and losers. Okay, there's this yeah. idea that for the Fed to remain credible, then it needs to sort of take a neutral stance in markets, which is absurd on its face. Oh, so yeah, good luck with that. They, yeah. Their very existence, the very sort of um, function that they play in society is not neutral. But anyway, um, you know, they have the Fed. I don't want to get too far down the side, um, a, um, a rabbit hole here, but the Fed has a dual mandate, one of which is to 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 ensure price stability. The other is to ensure full employment. Um, and they've definitely chosen a winner there um, historically. So. Yeah. So anyway, um, but. But Powell's Fed is different. Powell's Fed wants to stabilize these markets, um, and they are going to directly intervene in municipal bond markets, which is fascinating. I think um, so. And and it's kind of worth, and I think you'll find this is a theme with the government's response uh, to all of this. Um, the the last recession, the last financial crisis in 08 or so, um, kind of set up it. It created some tools. Uh, that are now kind of just being pulled off the shelf and uh, extended. It was a, if I remember right, at least it was a pretty big deal ten years ago when the Fed stepped in and said we're going to start buying these mortgage-backed securities. Oh yeah, it was. Um, I don't, I don't think they'd ever done that before. If, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. I can't. Not to my so, knowledge. Not to my knowledge. It was so, like we'd have to ask, ask like Derek Ryan about that, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and so so this time around they're buying those, but now they're buying. Uh, like uh, Mitch said, they're buying the munis, they're buying the corporate debts, which is a, a really fascinating one. Uh, and they just announced that they're going to extend that to the junk corporate bonds, which is below investment grade, so high risk uh, corporate debts essentially. Although I should note, I was just reading about that earlier. As far as I can tell, they're only agreeing to buy the junk bonds that uh, were recently. Uh, or at least previously not junk bonds. So a lot of corporate debt, including Ford, uh, has been downgraded to below investment grade. So they're really just kind of grandfathering in uh, that they're going to buy up that corporate debt. But I could be wrong on that, too, because so much of this is so complex, I'm only getting in what I read. Yeah, how much of the some of these movements seem like actual, actually worthwhile, and how much of it just seems like, you know, setting fire to that big old joker money pile? <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. I I think just about everything the Fed's doing is worthwhile, um, only because uh, what they're trying to do is keep keep the sort of international payment system from collapsing, hmm. uh, which you know, for better or worse. It's the system that we have that that makes the markets go round, and if it collapses in an uncontrolled burn, um, that's how you get that's how you get the failure of, of states. That's how you get that's how you get the failure of institutions. Yeah. Um, we've, we've been down this road that. historically before. Yeah. Um, and so they're basically trying everything that they they can to ensure that that doesn't happen. Now, when we come out of this, it'll be interesting to see you know. Um, what the conversation will look like in terms of too big to fail, 
systems of resiliency that can be built, the, you know, any sort of mea culpas and all that. Um, but for now, I, I don't think there's anything the Fed is doing that is untoward per se. It's it doesn't the optics are not great. I'll be honest with you. There are times like the 1.5 trillion. I think there was a good week of that on Twitter, where it was like, oh great, you know, you 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 burned up 1.5 trillion dollars for 15 minutes of a stock market rally. Okay, that's not really what was going on in that movement. That was it was a it was stabilization of the essentially the plumbing of the financial system. But from the standpoint of of political economy, it looks like we, you know, we've been telling progressives and the left and everyone else who who cares about the future that you can't afford nice things for God knows how many decades now. And then just overnight, you've come up with one point five trillion dollars from the Federal Reserve to sort of stabilize, um, you know, the financial system. And then the stock market goes bloop for a couple minutes. All right. That's one, one, one ancillary side effect of that is, is an opportunity to demolish this myth that, that money is scarce. Um, and then that's why you can't have nice things. All right. So that's, yeah. that's the lesson we ought to take from that. And I, I would say um, I, I largely agree with Mitch that there's nothing particularly untoward. But, but we are kind of we're, – we're extending what we did um, – after the last financial crisis. So we're, we're back to a position where this global interconnected financial network uh, can't be allowed to fail. Uh, the markets and the, the major financial institutions can't fail without threatening God knows what kind of apocalypse. Um, but it's, it's ratcheting up. So 10 years ago, you know, a handful of banks couldn't fail. So we had to basically recapitalize them. We had to uh, recapitalize AIG, and the Fed had to um, the Fed had to start buying up the mortgage-backed securities uh, to maintain that whole system. Then we changed nothing. Yeah, or effectively changed uh, very little to nothing. This time around, what kind of concerns me is we're back in this situation of well. We can't let this st stuff fail. But now it's not just a handful of large, um, yeah. large banks, and it's not just mortgages. Now it's also junk bonds. It's also corporate debts. Uh, my suspicion is we're we're going to find out that there are other uh, financial markets out there that are more systemically uh, important, perhaps than uh, we initially uh, thought. And it kind of comes back to. Uh, this private equities issue, if it comes back to the private equities firms have to be bailed out, then it's not just the investment banks like Goldman Sachs uh, that become too big to fail. It's pretty much literally every small group of millionaire and billionaire families in the world have now been deemed systemically important to the economic system. So if we come out of this halfway there, it's just going to be another five or ten years before we get to the next case, and we're just going to keep ratcheting up into this kind of hyper-normalized, yeah. neoliberal, yeah. financial capitalist just, uh, system. Yeah, completely distort or destroy any feedback control mechanism. Exactly. So I, I agree with that 100%. And I kind of think – there. So, so there's a couple there's a couple of opportunities to sort of look beneath the surface of all this because, again, this is happening – very fast. The situation is evolving very fast, and frankly, in the absence of Congress, you have the Fed acting. Okay, you can't really blame it for doing that. Somebody's got Congress do is on recess right now, yeah, which is absurd. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but you've got a good example. Here, here's an example. You got Boeing, the Boeing Corporation, right? Blue chip, 
going concern. It's been around for a long time. One of the major employers, anchor institutions in the Pacific Northwest economy. Okay, they've you know sort of hat in hand, um, looking for sixty billion dollars worth of or forty billion, you know, whatever. After a couple billion, how do you keep track? Yeah. Um, Scientific notation. Looking, yeah. So looking for a bailout, basically saying that without without some sort of um, grant assurance from the the feds, uh, you know, we're we're not going to be able to remain this good public interest corporation. And it's like the moment the moment there's any hint of a um, conditions on acceptance of their uh, of the terms of it, they say, well, we don't. We're not interested in that. I think that I think the terms of the time were an equity stake, yeah. Um, yeah. and and it's like, well, we that's intolerable. We'll, we'll we'll seek financing elsewhere, and it's like that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, that a lot of these so-called systemically uh, systemically important institutions are not so systemic. I mean, they they're not at their last sort of option here. Um, frankly, you shouldn't push it to the last option. Like, if if we'd have responded. Out the gate with uh, a payroll assurance, just like every other modernized political economy arrangement has done, then then none of this would be necessary, it seems. But that's not what we did, and that's not where we are. So yeah, it's kind of interesting that the you know part of Trump's appeal to voters in 2016 was that he talked he talked a game about you know looking out for labor uh, yeah. to, to a certain extent, and it's just like you know uh, he. It's all been, as you as you just pointed out, Eric. It, it's it's been all to capital. All, you know, almost everything has been to the to the benefit of capital, and expanded what is uh you know you know necessary to the capital structure. It's it's just mind blowing. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's what concerns me is is that it's it's just getting more solidified and more expansive the way policymakers think about this uh in terms of capital can't lose and i think that's that's the big thing is you know when um when you look at the the speculative stuff whether it's people buying up uh condos to rent out for airbnb or the private equities firms buying up you know hospitals or toys r us or what have you uh i i think even in my mind there's always been this idea of well it's speculative so yeah, they're gonna get they're you know it's go what Mitch do you remember the the quote from Keynes that's if it's a bubble on a whirlpool of speculation do you remember that it's uh, well the quote sounds familiar in my at this age in my life I can't I can't like ver, I can't recall these things verbatim um, but it's it's something like um, you know, speculation isn't a problem as long as it's a major, as long as it's a minor part of the economy. But, and I think it's something like if enterprise is a bubble on a whirlpool of speculation, uh, then that's the problem. And I'm starting to think that the the issue here is speculation can actually be maintained if there's never any downside to it. And increasingly, I see policymakers looking at this as well. We just need to prevent the downside to the speculative. Um, behavior and at that point it's it's much more of a kind of absolutist power to uh, financial investors or to capital in a in a general sense. I, I, and it seems like it's it's an it's a it's like I feel like the common person walking around often conflates Wall Street, you know, with the economy. And then when you see that these are the behaviors of the people that understand the economy, it almost seems like they're not. 
they're not very many steps away from that same uh, mentality. Does that does that make sense to y'all? Yeah, I have the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got the here. Uh, the quote is according to uh, MaynardKeens.org/slash Keens quotes. Um, speculators may do. Speculators may do no may, may do no harm as bubbles on a steady stream of enterprise, but the position is serious when enterprise becomes the bubble on a whirlpool of speculation. When the capital development of a country becomes a byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. The introduction of a substantial government transfer tax on all transactions might prove the most serviceable reform available with a view to mitigating the predominance of speculation over enterprise in the United States. Yeah, see, I kind of got that right, I think. You did yeah. pretty good job. Pretty good. I'm going to go email your macro professors from Grassland <laughs> and tell them, yeah. job well done. Yeah, it was, uh, it's Randy Ray and Stephanie Kelton. No, actually, <laughs> yeah. Matt Forstatter was intermediate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of, uh, of all the people I took macro from. I got lucky on that. Awesome. Uh, but, yeah, that's the thing. So, so, you know, and this is a good comparison to previous kind of Keynesian policy, and it really I think at this point is ideological. Um, everybody would have known even 30 or 40 years ago that you can't just prop up the, the speculators uh, and call it good. But we're at this kind of points uh, ideologically that we just say, well, as long as the speculators don't lose their shirts, then the economy will be fine. And then, you know, some people on the left will complain about how renters got evicted and workers uh, got uh, laid off, but fuck them. Yeah, like I said, for yeah, me, that's, that's what concerns You know, like, um, there's there's just a glaring con- contradiction these days. And I, there was a sort of, did Jim Cramer still, uh, from Friday, I want to say it was, uh, that was floating around Twitter, that I've decided yeah. to put in my next fucking syllabus. Um which is it's just like it's just a green it's just a, a upward sloping green stonks line you know and just sort of talking about the week's rally which was pretty good the Dow to oh, date the Dow's best week percent oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. Dow's, Dow's best Dow's week best since 1938s with the uh, with yep. the Chiron uh, breaking news more than 16 million Americans have lost jobs in three weeks also right. uh, bioanal cysts at 3.6. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, like, here's the deal: is like you've got two historic, two historic features simultaneously being shown um, that sort of move in the opposite direction. Speculators are winning because they're they've sort of Bernie Sanders dropped out. Um, they're sort of solidifying their expectations, at least in the medium term, that the Fed and the Treasury are going to be standing by to make sure that they don't lose their position and have to make you know liquid their position, so to speak. And uh, but but, you know, historic unemployment claims. I mean, this is on a level that we just simply have not seen since since the 1930s, if not like the 1890s. What's uh, the what's the highest un- unemployment rate in the history of the U.S. economy? It's in it's in like what? It's 34 percent or no. I don't I've seen different estimates for the Great Depression. The, yeah, the Great Depression uh, I think was like 24 the consensus is 25 or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's right. different there's different estimates. Yeah. And yeah, I think the 80, 1890s might have been worse. Yeah. That's but the, we didn't keep those numbers like we do now. Yeah, that's the kicker. Nah. It's like we yeah, we don't have uh, – the only reason we don't have shanty towns anymore is that people don't have tar paper. They have uh, they have tarps and, uh, and, and cheap tents. Yeah. Another type of permanent construction is this community stadium, representative of a large group of projects that provide facilities for public gatherings all over America. 
In cooperation with other federal agencies, many important improvements have been made under the works program at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and other centers of government activity. As an aid to traffic, hundreds of new bridges have been completed, designed to withstand high waters and the pounding of heavy loads. Thousands of other bridges have been repaired and made safe. Many cities have been freed from the peril of disease by the provision of modern scientific correct sewage systems, which often replace antiquated systems entirely inadequate for the needs of the community. Developments such as these are always undertaken with the cooperation of the public health agencies serving each locality, and the projects are carried out under the supervision of competent sanitary engineers. Well, I, I kind of wanted to make a note because I, I kept bringing up uh, private equities firms. Sure. It occurs to me that I didn't really explain what that means. I was say, yeah, a lot you... of people probably won't. Is it worth explaining how those work? Yeah, extremely. Yeah, remember, imagine your audience is a bunch of like well-intentioned first-year students, and like kind of like start with that, if you will, of just because kind of because I think that's the thing is like private equity people just kind of shrug that off and not realizing exactly how like vampiric or parasitic, like, full of, like yeah. fucking vampire squid, whatever like mid nineteenth-century mark you know Gothic Marxian imagery you want to use. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, so I'll, I'll give a, a brief spiel on it, uh, even though I kind of put the cart before the horse, uh, saying it was a problem. Uh, so private equity is basically, it's another type of financial firm. It's another type of Wall Street bank, in a sense. Uh, it's kind of like a hedge fund. Uh, but what it does specifically is it basically buys out controlling shares in companies and then generally restructures those companies. So that, that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean laying off workers. Usually means replacing the board of directors, uh, or at least many members on it, and the upper management. Uh, it also means financial restructuring. The basic gist, though, is that private equities firms have this kind of, this kind of combo uh, this move that they can do that just sucks money out of a company and can destroy the company all to the benefit of the, the private equity firm. And it works something like this. I'll just kind of give you the, the gist of it. Uh, the private equity firm goes to, say, a pension fund, borrows a bunch of money, and then it uses that money to buy out a controlling stake in a company. Like, say, Once it controls the What's that? Go ahead. Oh, say, like, say, Toys R Us. Like Toys R Us, yeah. So classic example is Toys R Us uh, happens not that long ago. I think that the initial purchase was a good 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what, Toys R Us filed bankruptcy Sears? last year? Sears. Um, yeah. Guitar Center. Uh, well, all of this. Anyway, yeah, in, endless examples. Yes, please continue, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, all of that really kind of kicked off in the 1980s, especially 1983, but it continues to go today, and it's, it's especially ramped up since the uh, Great Recession. Uh, yeah, so basically what they do is they borrow money, they buy up a company, and then they control the company and have the company take on massive amounts of debts. So they make the company borrow a bunch of money on the company's book, and then they spend that money on a special dividend, which just pays back the private equities firm. So at that point, the private equities firm is already basically paid off. They've already made their money, and they can repay the people they borrowed the money from. And the only thing they had to do to make that happen was to load down the company with massive debts. Um, so that's that's the gist of that uh, combo move that they do to make their money. It doesn't do anything but threaten the you know bankruptcy of the company. They do other stuff. Toys R Us and Sears, I think, too. Uh, had this issue where if the company owns a bunch of real estates, you see this with a lot of uh, retail companies, 
if they own the real estate that the store sits on, then they'll buy up the private equities firm will buy up that company and then split it into two. So you've got the retail side and you've got basically a landlord side and the private equities firm owns both of them. And what they can do then is they can use the landlord side to jack up the rents on the retail side and then use the landlord side to pay out the private equities firm. So it's basically sucking money out of that uh, company and making it harder for that company to um, stay in business. So especially over the last 10 years, these private equities firms have been buying up just companies all over the country with, you know, essentially this kind of uh, parasitic uh, business model uh, in mind. It's not to say they all kind of run that way. I'm sure some of them are good. People say that at least. I'm not sure. Um, and now they're looking to say, well, you know, we have been systematically gutting companies for 10 years. And now coronavirus here provides a, a good excuse for why these companies are on on uh, unsound footing. Uh, so they're looking to get bailed out. Um uh, in that regard, saying, oh, no, we didn't do that. Coronavirus did that. And there's fighting. From what I've read, the even some of the Republicans in Washington are against letting that uh, happen. But these private equities firms are, are very powerful uh, political influencers. So honestly, I would not be surprised if they didn't uh, eventually bail them out. Well, there was that article, and I, it may have been that um – Excuse me. Edit that out. Um, sure. It's allergy season. Um, well, I, you know, I saw an article that was like sort of your canonical, like, if you ever wanted a reason to fucking hate private equity, now is your reason article. And it was like private equity firm buys up a medical services firm and then like proceeds to slash doctor salaries yep. in the midst of the, the coronavirus crisis. And now is seeking fucking hat in hand some, you know, some uh, no strings attached bailout funds. And it's like, are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah, that's a, that's another thing. I guess I didn't know this until recently. I guess a lot of doctors and nurses don't work for the hospitals. They work for uh, a contract firm, kind of like um, cleaning staff in a, in a hotel don't actually work for the hotel anymore. And a lot of those employment services are private equity owned. Eric, why do firms even exist? Don't answer. <laughs> <laughs> to support the interests of the ruling elite. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, another one I just saw uh, related to Mitch's. Uh, so there's uh, Cerberus, which is a, uh, a well-known private equity firm. Cerberus Capital Sue taking a big stake in Avon. The private equity firm has struck a deal to buy 80% of Avon's North American business. It's also going to assume a 17% stake in the entire company. Um, which also bought out... Oh, I'm sorry. I just see just the hilarity, like the Verhovian just hilarity that a real life company would name yourself straight out of like central casting stereotypical evil company, like just literally calling themselves Cerebus. It's like what the? <laughs> f it's, like, it's like the uh, the shadow uh, company for yeah. the uh, Iowa caucuses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ken, let's dig deeper into this app, Shadow, uh, the, its parent or, or main investor uh, acronym, uh, the relationship with, uh, the, with the Democratic Party in Iowa, how they began this relationship, and where we go from here. It can't simply be, this thing failed, oops, we didn't have a third party verify. It's got to be more than that. Yep. No, you're absolutely right, Stephanie. Look, I think one of the issues is very little is known about how this firm was picked, how it came to be. <laughs> 80s Corporation. Yeah. <laughs> 
We should, if, if there isn't already, we should start Umbrella Corp. From the leading name in biotechnology comes Regenerate. Another breakthrough from the Umbrella Corporation. Regenerate's revolutionary T-cell formula actually brings dead cells back to life. Yeah, I was gonna say the, yeah. the fact when when your when your real life company is less subtly named than the Umbrella Corporation, <laughs> then it's I don't know it's one of those things where you know someone please revive Gita Board and uh, just just let him you know <laughs> gasp in horror at uh, what, what's going on. Anyway, please continue. Sorry for interrupting. So yeah, I guess uh, Cerberus had bought up a, a, a hospital because it's not uh, private equity firms don't just buy up you know manufacturers; they buy up other companies too, and that includes for-profits um, hospital enterprises. Uh, and they bought up a hospital a while back, uh, and they pulled this kind of split the company into the landlord side and the, the non-landlord side. Uh, so I just read an article from I forget where uh, the hospital had owned the property. Uh, for 127 years, uh, the private equity firm had split it and was now making the hospital pay rent um, to essentially the private equity uh, firm. And after this, one one of the things I guess uh, that I've learned in all this with coronavirus is uh, hospitals tend to make their money on elective um, procedures. So hospitals are taking a big hit now because they're not doing those uh, procedures. So that's putting hospitals, I don't know how many uh, hospitals, but it's putting a lot of them in a financial um, uh, problem. Uh, but anyway, this one uh, was in this sort of financial problem, and the private equities firm at uh, Cerberus uh, went to the state of Pennsylvania and basically said, if you don't give us millions of dollars, we're shutting this down. Uh, and ultimately, the governor did say, yeah, okay, we'll give you millions of dollars. And from what I read, at least, that money, at least part of that money, is going to be coming from the stimulus package in the uh, CARES Act. Ooh, lovely system. <laughs> Well, shit. Like I said, we we uh, we do have the real world example of the fuckhead who bought. Was it, is it Hanneman? What was the name of that of the hospital in Philadelphia? The one in Philly, yeah, something like that. Yeah, the one where back they were just threatening to shut down and like even like like uh, the Bernie Sanders like, took the campaign there just to like march with all of these with all of the, uh, the 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 protesting nurses and medical staff to prevent that. And as all of you know, the possible closure of Hanneman has nothing to do with health care. It has everything to do with greed, corporate greed. Then it turns out the guy, what is it, um, the schmuck who bought it was trying to, what a, God, what, I can't remember what, what the rates were something, I can't remember if it was like 31 million a week or it was like some ungodly number, it was like seven figures a day or it was some stupid thing of like, yeah, here, pay me this and I'll reopen it. And, the, and yeah. it was so bad the city, the mayor just said, no, fuck off, we're, we're you know, uh, we're, we're done here and just walked Temple's a makes me very emotional to think about how Temple uh, just stepped up when we asked him for the first time, and we had to go back and forth and dicker around with a multi-millionaire owner who wanted to maximize his profits. The city hoped to reopen Hahnemann as an overflow space, but Mayor Kenny said the owners wanted them to pay what equaled a million dollars a month. Broad Street Health Property said in a statement on Thursday it applauded the city's efforts to address the health crisis and is willing to re-engage in discussions. It's unconscionable. Yeah. Uh, dark times are coming, folks, um, in more ways than one. 
It's like if yeah, if you if you prevent people from uh, uh from like handling you know issues like this, uh, you know, if you cut out like the electoral means, for example, they're gonna s- seek other avenues to um to seek you know to seek regressive grievances, which is gonna mean you know the the counter response to that is gonna be even worse. Yeah. Let there be a central park in every city. Yeah. And a lamppost on every street corner. <laughs> it's a, hey, if nothing else, you know, like Chris Matthews is off the air for right now, so that's something. <laughs> yeah, <after laughs> that. Kind of miss that. Guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how we avoid uh, like like you know uh, the modern equivalent of pitch pitchfork sharpening and uh, torch lighting. I mean, I, I you know unless unless they really do uh, something major to how people are you know ordinary people are getting aid through this thing that's the, well that's yeah that's the thing that's the craziest thing producing anything either it's like how do you i mean you could just give them money but you know what i mean like yeah yeah i don't know i don't know how how we deal with this shit well even if they just i mean that's part of the thing is like that's you know you could and you could go like kind of like you know just the, the limited just ideological idiocy of this and just like hey no idiot you know it's kind of like all the shit that like rashida talib was proposing of like the, the whole like give two thousand you know give people like two grand a month on debit cards and and like a thousand dollars per children like every month it's like no you do that because the money is there and that say you know that um that prevents people from uh from getting so you know what so um on edge that you know some of the options that weren't really popular might might just become more popular The rapid growth of air traffic outdistanced airport for hundreds of cities is the opportunity offered by the WPA to build or improve modern airports. One of the busiest of all airports is at Newark. This field is the eastern terminus of all of the great transcontinental airlines, and hundreds of transport ships land and take off from its runways every day. At Newark, as at a great many other cities, the works program has provided jobs for thousands of workers in the improvement of existing facilities and in new construction. Anyway, uh, well, you know, that's probably a good segue for your your modern monetary theory. Yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, I was saying, unless there's anything else you want to talk about private equity, can we get into? Can you the, just the basics of what the hell modern monetary theory is? And it's even, and this is even at some point you're, you're seeing even you know, well, we're still of course we still see. I was say we see inter left fights about this, but you know, intra left fights about this. But when do we not see intra left fights about anything online? Uh, can you uh, can one of y'all lay out what the hell MMT actually is? I think Mitch is good at this. I'll let him do it. Okay. <laughs> um, so so modern monetary theory is a framework for analyzing how sort of modern sovereign currency issuing um, countries stand in relation to their currency. Okay. So when I say that a sovereign currency issuing Country, I, I'm sort of distinguishing it from the user of a con- or user of a currency, right? So, like, take the United States for example. Um, the United States uh, issues dollars that are it's U.S. currency, right? Mm-hmm. The dollar is a U.S. currency. Um, it is the sole manufacturer and issuer of those those dollars, uh, and it only accepts in payment of taxes and other obligations dollars. So, when you have that sort of arrangement. And, 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 and furthermore, when you don't promise to sort of convert that to another currency on demand, then that creates a particular privilege um, that, you know, many, many other sort of uh, um, countries or 
or, or sort of economic systems also have. It's not just the United States, but it creates a privilege that should be reckoned with, particularly when we talk about public policy. Um, it basically means you can never run out of dollars, all right? So so think about that for just, just a moment. What does that mean? Well, it basically means that whatever big projects you want to do or whatever you know, sort of public interest um, policies you want to put into place, uh, the question of whether or not you can or should do it is never constrained or bound by whether or not the dollars exist. Yeah. How are you going to okay. pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Well, exactly. Yeah, it's like, you know, um, that that is a a very frustrating uh, political constraint that seems to always stimmy and stop any kind of even very weeny liberal demands for progressive advancement, because in sort of normal times, it's like there's a there's a kind of Washington consensus, a, a modern Washington consensus that essentially stands up across the a bipartisan ideological spectrum to stand up and say, hold on there, young kid. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can't afford to, to give everyone a pony. You know, like that's and, – and there's sort of an implicit leaning on this idea that dollars are fundamentally scarce and that the, federal's, the federal government's um, relationship with that currency is the same as it is with you and I. But it's fundamentally different. And with this crisis – what this crisis has exposed on its face is that is you know that is a, a lie. Um, it you know we, we're creating trillions of dollars. It seems like almost on a weekly basis in terms of sort of future or present commitments to backstop the entire U.S. economy. Um, you can clearly pay for things in dollar terms if that's what you want to do. So so at its core, modern monetary theory is that basic idea that before you even get into political projects or very specific programs you want to do. Um, that the way that we've got our institutions arranged are such that you can always afford to spend in your own currency. And so once you recognize that, then you have to start to talk about policy from the standpoint of what are the real effects of, of what you would like to do. Can you really afford in real terms um, to provide everyone a job who wants wants to work? And the answer is, of course you can. Hmm. Um, can you afford in real terms to to purchase everyone a yacht? Probably not. But but you don't want to do that, right? Yeah. So th- these are the sort of real um, structural questions you would have to ask. Um, but that's actually what economists should be doing anyway. And so in some sense, modern monetary theory strips away a lot of the bullshit and allows you to sort of get the business of doing economic analysis. Can um, I uh, can I ask you a question about tax? Uh, I've been I'm I'm a a, a a a recent enthusiast about modern monetary theory. Yeah, uh, I was going to step in and explain it because I just read a an 85 page book about it, but uh, I I decided Mitch would probably be better. Uh, <laughs> the, I, I've heard modern uh, MMT people say like basically tax. We should think of it as like the government is the issuer of the currency, so we have sort of permission to use the currency, and we. Like taxes are basically our acknowledgement of that relationship that we have. Is that is that an accurate? So like like what they always say is that like and it's and it's meant to blow minds and it should is that taxes don't fund government spending. You know like like right. government government says they're going to spend money through a legislative process and then voila once they've ratified a, a law they have spent the money in effect. Like it had nothing to do with collecting tax. So what what is the uh, and maybe we're getting t- maybe this is too philosophical a question, but this is something 
I want to understand a little bit better. Like, how should we think about the 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 function of taxing if it is not if if it's not to I know that it can be used to fight inflationary uh, pressures, but um, that's, from my understanding, not its primary function. Is that right? That's that's right. Like, um, I think earlier in the sort of MMT discourse, I think the taxation function um, uh, was was emphasized in relation to fighting you know, sort of demand-led inflation, but I don't think that's very. I don't think it's doing its best work in that regard. I think there's other ways. Like we've moved past that. I'll come back to that question. But to, to answer your question more directly, the the purpose of the tax is to drive the currency. To use like Randy Ray or Warren Moser's language, um, who are the sort of some of the chief architects of this this framework. And what they mean by driving the currency is is essentially you think of you think of money like a it's. It, Think, think of the state's money as like a um, an, an IOU or an obligation that exists in relation to a whole sea of obligations or IOUs. Um, but what the thing that makes the sort of state's IOU rise to the top of that hierarchy is that is that that sort of power dynamic between the state, the sovereign on the one hand, and the subjects and the sort of um, you know denizens, if you will, on the other. And because they are this very powerful agent, this very centralized agent, and they can sort of compel by fiat um, that they only accept in, in acceptance of tax obligations is very specific IOU, and that's their own IOU, then it gives a value to that thing. And it's not necessary for everyone to have a tax obligation for that to then become a, a sort of generalized, recognized, universal uh, means of settling debts, Okay. So suppose there's some sort of minimal um, viable set of individuals in society who have a tax obligation, but they are central enough in, in sort of the market um, structure uh, that then they sort of um, accept in exchange of goods and services other people's dollars, which can be settle be used to discharge tax obligations. Then you've done the trick in a sense, and you've created a, a gyro of, of circulating um, uh, you know, dollar transactions that are used to settle debts, public and private, right? And so that sort of public um, legal tender statement, and I shouldn't say that's the legal tender um, uh, uh, statement about the currency that gives it its value. It's it's literally just the fact that there's enough people in society that need to pay taxes in dollars to confer upon it a generalized demand for dollars. Eric, does that sound about right from the from the canon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's all, you know, the kind of high theory of it. The the purpose of taxes is generally to suck money out of a system that shouldn't have it or out of individuals that that don't have it. If you want to tax rich people because, uh, you know, we shouldn't incentivize the way to make money, uh, the ways you make as much money as as the highest income earners make, um, tax them. You don't necessarily you an MMT you don't do that by any means for for the purposes of financing spending. Uh, but you know, honestly, I don't even think it necessarily has to be for the purposes of maintaining demand for the the dollar. Once the dollar is established, you you tax to remove money from people who don't need it or who shouldn't, or to disincentivize 
making that much money maybe yeah so that that's a good point that you pull off it's like there's a certain historic historicity of this there's the, there's the sequence of of cause and effect um and the modern monetary framework is rooted in a commitment to cause and effect in a sort of evolutionary economics framework uh and so there's this idea that historically money comes into existence um as a kind of um debt instrument on the part of the sovereign to mobilize real resources to, to fund public um, investment, public expenditures, right? So if you want to raise an army, and an army a, yeah, usually you, in the term for, form of a war, yeah, yeah, you you levy a tax on a subject, a, a set of subjects that you may have conquered, and say you can only pay it in in Alexander the Great bucks or whatever, and pretty soon you've got this sort of monetary economy that's going. Or if you've conquered a sub-Saharan sub-Saharan African society and you want them to mine diamonds, guess what? You say, guess what? Your old ways of doing business are over. Uh, here's your gunbo- gunboat or um, diplomacy here. You will now mine diamonds for me to earn um, uh, this currency to, to settle your debt. All right. And so it's it's there's this sort of first sin aspect of it, um, but that's just sort of a, a a feature of class society as much as it is a feature of anything else or economics. But then the situation evolves. And once you've gotten to a, a point where you've got a monetary economy that, 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 that uses dollars or uses whatever state currency you're talking about, um, then it sort of, uh, sort of exists in, in, on its own, in a sense. Yeah, uh, I can I give you an example. Oh, yeah, no, you, I just going to keep rambling. So. I was going to say, I can, I can give you an example of how I do it in my classes, which is something Mitch will be familiar with because um, it started at UMKC. Um, when when students take my macroeconomics class, the first day of uh, class, I go in and say, "There's this thing called a pantheru, and it's and it's a thing I've printed up, and it looks kind of it's green, it's, it looks kind of like a dollar, but it's got a panther on it because that's uh, the mascot <laughs> of a uh, PCC." Um, and I say, "There's this thing called a pantheru. It's a piece of paper, and uh, to get full credit at the end of the term, you have to give me these." And students say, well, okay, well, I, then I'll need to get these, obviously, to, to get to that. And I say, that's exactly right. Uh, and then you get them by doing uh, basically various assignments that I give. Uh, Whatever the fuck I want you to do. Yeah. yeah. Problem exactly. <laughs> and at the end of the term, I say, I explain MMT at the end of the term in this class. I say, if I had come into class the first day of the term and said, um, you know, your grade depends on whether you can give me these pantheroos at the beginning of the term, uh, you would have all, you know, been pretty upset and dropped the course uh, because obviously you couldn't pay pantheroos that you couldn't have gotten before uh, going through this term. Um, so that, I think that kind of emphasizes, I forget who came up with that back at UMKC. Was it Bourne or Pavlin or uh, it doesn't really matter. It emphasizes that the the causal nature, as Mitch was saying, is the spending has to precede um, the taxes. If the taxes are collected in a thing that can only get into the hands of the taxpayers through the spending in the first place. Right. Right. OK, cool. Thank and you for that. I hope I hope that was. not Well, I mean, so I'm glad that you're asking this question from your standpoint as an accountant, because there's another very important aspect of the modern monetary stuff that um, relies upon double entry accounting right which is which is this idea that um, like you know if, if you're looking at dollars and where they are and 
in, in at any given time, a snapshot of all the dollars in society. Like they can either exist on private balance sheets or they can exist on public balance sheets so they can exist in some sort of non-domestic balance sheet somewhere else, whether that be public or private. They got to exist somewhere. They don't just go, they don't go to Mars. They don't go to, into the ether. You know, they, a, a dollar of spending is another person's income. And that's just always true, right? And so when you, when you trace these flows of funds, um, you realize that uh, for, the, for the private sector to net save, to accumulate dollars, balances, whether that's in the domestic or the, or the, the rest of the world, um, you know, you've got to, you've got to have the, the treasury issuing them on deficit. You know, you have to have the Treasury spending more dollars into the economy than they're being taxed back in order for private citizens to save. And that is a that is a key um, piece of the puzzle that people need to that's sort of a a circuit breaker that needs to trip or like a a switch that needs to flip for people to get this idea that just because the the federal deficit is large or the national debt is growing, um, it doesn't mean they're on the hook for that. It actually means they actually the private sector has this increasing savings balance, which is essentially a record of all the spending that's ever been done. And the important question to ask is, okay, that's fine and well, but what is the distribution of that wealth, right? If it's all just in the hands of like five people in New York City, then that doesn't do us much good, right? But but maybe it's maybe it could be uh, done in a way that created a broad set of prosperity, you know. So that's that's how MMT kind of sort of splits the um, the qualitative divide and, and, and engages in different political um, economy questions. And it's pretty versatile as a left uh, political analysis. At Cleveland, great industrial center, emergency workers, an immense landing mat, the largest single piece of paving in the world. At Detroit, both construction and improvements were completed. Second largest of American cities and first in transportation is Chicago, where an extensive program of airport improvements have given the city adequate air terminal facilities. Philadelphia is third among our cities in population, yet this Pennsylvania metropolis has never had its own airport. Passengers bound for Philadelphia by air have been forced to land in another city, in fact, in another state. Not until the Great Works program became a reality was it possible to begin the construction of this air terminal on the site of the faint island shipyard. What are some of the, uh, I guess, what are the, some of the criticisms of it from, I mean, even like some of like the more like leftier, Marxistier like folks? So I see some, I mean, or, or at least what are the more cre- credible, I guess, uh, criticisms of it? You know, Mitch probably has this uh, better than I do, uh, because all I can say is I've read uh, critique after critique from... To be concluded on the next episode of Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person.